Good morning, Redemption Parker. Good to see you guys. It's a, a privilege to be able to worship with y'all this Lord's Day. If you would, you, you can start by opening up to Luke chapter 3. That's where we'll be here in a few minutes. While you're turning there, you can put that slide up on the screen. Wesley, the next one. The next one. I think it's, I think it's in there. The cave. There it is. Anyone know what this is? <coughs> Shout it out. What? <laughs> good, good. It kind of looks like an elephant. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty good. Anyone else? Qumran. Qumran. The, the seminary guy says Qumran. So, so Qumran is, is located in Israel, just southeast of Jerusalem, right along the north shore of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the face of the earth. Well, in 1946, there were some Bedouin shepherd boys roaming along these caves with their goats. When Muhammad Ed-Dib, he stumbled upon some quite amazing history. Him and his cousin actually walked out with seven ancient Israelite scrolls. They had been housed in jars of clay and preserved for two millennia. One of the scrolls they found was the entire book of Isaiah, right? It, it, it dated all the way back to the second temple period from around the third century BC. And I get excited when Holly comes back from goodwill with the baseball card. <laughs> Another scroll they found was not part of the, the biblical canon, but was nonetheless interesting. It was the community rule from the first century AD, well, over the next 10 years, archaeologists found 11 more caves and unpacked more than 900 manuscripts at Qumran, known today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mentioned the, I mentioned the community rule that was found, but, but who was this group of people? Who was this actual community? Who, who, who were these people writing these scrolls? copying these scriptures. Who lived here? Qumran was home to a yahad in, in Hebrew. A yahad is a community. But this was no gym membership. It took a two to three year probation period before initiation into this community could take place. And some of y'all think our covenant membership process is too long. Well, this community is known as the Essenes. Now, because of the New Testament, we've all heard of the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. But there was a lot going on in the silent years, the, the, the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Jews were, were split into all sorts of factions, we learn from guys like Philo and Josephus, Jewish historians in the days of Christ, that the Essenes wanted nothing to do with the temple or the current temple. This is probably why they don't come up in any of the Gospels. They were waiting forward. They were waiting for Messiah to come and usher in the new temple. 
They, they were a closed fellowship. They considered their small group the remnant, the true Israel, the, the true priesthood, they, where they would make acceptable sacrifices to Yahweh and by their purity, hopefully usher in Messiah. They say palm trees were their only companions. No money, no women. They would precede each of their meals with a polar plunge known as baptism. Baptism each and every day. Imagine that. These, these cold immersions into the water would bring ritual and moral purity into their lives. And they had, and they had given their lives to be devoted to the study, the interpretation, and the faithful living out of their scriptures. Say what you want about the Essenes, but you can't knock these dudes for their devotion, right? And you thought you were killing it in your quiet times. But during these silent years from the last time the prophet of God spoke, tension has been building, right? In everyone's recent memory, Israel was almost completely annihilated. Right? If, you, if you know the Hanukkah story, you know that the Maccabees had saved the day. But that freedom didn't last long. Soon they were back under oppression. This time, Roman oppression. The longing for the Jew was for Messiah. This was the air they were breathing in first century Israel. And the hope was that this Messiah, when he came, he would destroy He would destroy their Roman oppressors through military power, and he would usher in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that would have made David's kingdom look like child's play. In one scroll, they all knew, whether the Essenes at Qumran, the the, the scribes in Jerusalem, or the Pharisees in Judea, was Isaiah, the same Isaiah that was found at Cave 1 in Qumran. And if you know Isaiah, Isaiah promised a second exodus, a final return from exile. He promised that all would see God's salvation. And so all serious Jews, Essenes and otherwise, would have known the words and the meanings and longed for the day, the day that Isaiah promised They kept their ears open for the words. You can throw it up on the screen. The voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Isaiah's promise would usher in the king's arrival. This is the longing on the hearts of many of God's people in Israel in the first century. Many scholars think that that John the Baptist, the, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, which we'll see shortly, was probably acquainted with many of the Essenes as they dwelt in the same area in the in the Judean wilderness. But as John begins To make a people ready for her king, will they listen? 
and not just the Essenes, will anybody heed the voice of the one who is calling in the wilderness? Will John the Baptist gather God's people? And what kind of people is John attempting to gather? And speaking of God's people, as you think about Christianity in Parker, Colorado, 2023, what ought to mark off the people of God today? What should our yahad look like, our community look like? Think about that for a second. And as you begin to come up with a, a picture or maybe a word, I, I want us to dive into this passage this morning to see if God would not recalibrate our hearts and our minds to be that Yahad, God's new covenant community that he is calling us to be. So if you're not already there, let's open Holy Scripture to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This morning we get to be on the ground with John the baptizer. Now I'd rather call him John the Baptist, but the better translation is John the baptizer. Even though just for the record, he never baptized any babies, but that's another sermon for another day. And before we get to to the ministry of John, Luke is a historian. And so context is king. This is why I brought up the Essenes. We, we, we need to understand scripture in their world if we want to better bring it in to ours and apply it to our lives. R.C. Sproul called Luke the greatest historian of antiquity. I love that. And like all good historians, Luke wants to give us an accurate account of what went down in the days Jesus. So look with me at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Echeria, and Intraconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God, right? And, and guess what? God's word, Luke's history, checks out. This is not fake news. The people and places Luke is describing is affirmed even outside the Bible. And so Luke wants us to know that, that Christianity, though it is redemptive history is not only redemptive, it's legit history. We need to know these events actually took place. As one commentator says, like the inspired authors of Israel's history, Luke drives a peg into the sand of history himself. Luke gives us a a list of the who's who, the, the red carpet, the red carpet of first century Roman run Israel. These are the big dogs, like Coach Prime's entourage on a Saturday night in Colorado. I'm not sure if they won last night. They probably did. So did the Sooners. 
boomer sooner. Tiberius Caesar, he's the emperor of Rome. He's the one calling the shots. So, so, so Luke jumps from when Jesus was 12, as we saw last week, to AD 28, the 15th year of the Roman emperor Tiberius. It's important to note that Tiberius, like his father Augustus, ruled Israel from a distance. He was obviously in Rome. But the bad blood that he had against the Jews was felt Everywhere He had already expelled all, all Jews from Rome in AD 19. And if we're going to grasp the context of Luke, and we're going to be in this book for a while, we need to feel the hatred, the tension. Rome and Israel, enemies trying to work alongside one another. Rome, of course, in control of the relationship Luke also names Pontius Pilate. He's the governor of Judea. And if you remember from our summer series, he's the only character placed in the Apostles' Creed. Because as we'll find out in weeks ahead, he eventually plays quite the role in the execution of Jesus. After them, you have the Tetrarchs. Herod the Great, he actually split his kingdom up between all of his sons right before he died. And finally, Luke wants us to know his historical account all takes place under the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Okay, now that we have a bit of context for, for what is about to happen, I hope you can feel the religious and the political tension that was in the air in the hopes for Messiah that is on everyone's hearts and minds. Let's continue reading. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Amen. Remember the silent years is where God went quiet for 400 years. Namely, the spirit of prophecy hadn't been heard since the prophet Malachi. But Luke is clear. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. Well, what was his message? Look at verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I mentioned the baptism scene that was happening at Qumran with the Essenes and their daily dunks. But baptism had been on the scene for quite some time. Often it was in the context of a, of a Gentile wanting to become a Jew. Baptism was ordained to take place after circumcision to wash away the uncleanness of the former Gentile. But what John was up to was a little different. His baptism was rooted in his prophetic office. John, as we're going to see, is, is actually preparing a people for the coming Messiah. The one coming who will be, he, he will be the one who takes away sin, who, who brings real forgiveness. John is baptizing folks to get them ready for him. We quoted verse 4 through 6 earlier, but go ahead and let your eyes look down and glance upon Isaiah's prophecy again. John has come <coughs> as the final prophet before the king arrives. He's the voice of one calling in the wilderness 
preparing a people for God, a people who will see God's great salvation. (coughs) Sorry. A final return from exile. And the second and greater exodus is right on the horizon. Let's hear what John says to the people. Verse 7. John said to the crowds. Hold on. (coughs) Check, check. Cool. Man, I'm just glad I'm able to preach this morning. I went to grab a cough drop this morning and I, uh, I grabbed a pacifier and said, it's a long night last night. Verse seven, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood or offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Dang, homie. John ain't holding back any punches. He straight up said to a bunch of Jews, y'all are the seed of Satan. How's that for being politically correct? And then he says, how did you guys even know to come out to me to flee God's coming wrath? He'll baptize them, but he has a message for them. Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. I might be the the preacher everyone's talking about right now. Maybe that's why you're here, he's saying. But going under the water in the Jordan River means nothing without a life that matches repentance. This is pregame work. According to Isaiah's quote, God's salvation is coming. It's almost here. Judaism was not monolithic in the first century. Lots of different ideas out there, as we saw with the Essenes. But what we do know is that ethnocentrism, pride in being a Jew... Spiritual security through their lineage was most definitely one of their respectable sins. All cultures have them. So, so, so just as a, a quick application before we move on, what are our respectable sins? Is it ethnocentrism? Is it gossip? Slander? Gluttony? Laziness? Porn? Sins that our cultural Christianity has deemed respectable. Oh, let us flee respectable sins, church, because there is no such thing as a respectable sin. Back to our passage. Because they were Jewish in the line of Abraham, they were God's people. They were going to be just fine when Messiah finally comes. So they thought. John has a different message. You brood of vipers. Israel's been nothing short of faithless for years. Nevertheless, God is on the move. John uses a common Hebrew pun of his day to tell them that God can raise up Abraham's sons from stones. So be baptized 
But be warned, bear fruit. If not, John is saying, the axe is already at the root and your future will soon be consumed in eternal fire. Well, this crowd on the edge of their seat, as you'd imagine, responds. Verse 10. (coughs) What should we do then? The crowd asks. Verse 11. John answered. Anyone anyone who has two shirts... (coughs) should share with the one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same. Their question is placed on a T for John. Bear fruit, he says. What kind of fruit? What should we do? They respond. John could have said, I hope you like wearing camel, eating locust and wild honey. Come and follow me. And this life I live ain't for the faint of heart. You thought the Essenes were gnarly. Nope, he doesn't say that. John simply says, treat people well. But more people in the crowd want their own questions answered. Verse 12, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Now these guys are the dirtbags of Israel. Traitors, they work for Rome and exploit their own people. Their fellow brethren, the Jews, hate them. Again, you'd imagine John might at least tell them to quit their day jobs. But what does John say? Treat people well. Verse 13, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Finally, another group comes up to John, verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? This last group of people would have definitely even included Gentiles. As one scholar put it, the diversity among John's crowd confirms the great reversal is upon us. The reversal that was prophesied by the angel a couple chapters early, earlier, which will hit at Advent, it is already becoming a reality as John is getting a people ready. But how does John respond to these Jewish and Gentile soldiers? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. If if these people were expecting a revolution, John's message is a bit anticlimactic. Treat people fair. Be content with what you have. This is the message of John the baptizer. But instead of walking away, this crowd leans in. Who is this guy? They wonder. Could this be the guy? Look at verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Again, during this time in Israel's history, hopes for Messiah were at an all-time high. And we'll get to it during Advent, but John the baptizer has, has quite the story. Like anticipation surrounding Harry Potter as he's growing up, this is the case for John. Is he the real deal? Is he going to live up to the hype? If you remember, his dad, Zechariah, was a priest. And one day, he got selected to go into the temple. He saw some things. He heard some things. And he came out and couldn't speak for months. 
And after this visit he received in the temple from an angel, his childless old lady Elizabeth bears a son, the promised son they named John. Many in Israel would have known this story. Now, did everyone believe Zechariah? I don't know, probably not. But, but when John grows up, people are definitely curious. As you see here, is John the Messiah? This is what the crowd is pondering in their hearts. Verse 16, John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. What a response from the prophet. He tells them, my baptism is a water baptism to get you ready for the main show. And that's interesting because Jesus says that according to people born of women, there's none greater than his cousin, John. But John places himself lower than a slave in comparison to the one who is coming, the one he's pointing to. Slaves were the ones who untied the the straps of sandals. And washed nasty feet. And and this job in Israel, at least amongst the Jews, would not have been carried out by another Jew. That was too low of a job for a Jew. This was a job for a Gentile slave. But John, when comparing himself to Jesus, says, I'm not even worthy to take the job of a Gentile slave for this master. And then he explains what this coming master or Messiah will do. He will be a baptizer as well. One who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. We don't have time to go there, but think Pentecost. Think Acts chapter 2. He will bring true change, true conversion. He will give people the spirit of God. And then he comes with a job. The Messiah that, that John is preparing the way for will himself come and gather a people. The wheat into his barn, the chaff into everlasting judgment. This is Luke's historical account of what happened 2,000 years ago at the Jordan River. Imagine the scene. Picture yourself there. I love in John's account, the, the, the gospel of John, when, when Jesus shows up to where John is, is baptizing, John takes a look at Jesus. He looks at the crowd and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'd imagine if he wasn't in the water, his face would be on the floor. But this is how Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff. He's the Lamb of God. 
eventually sacrificed on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. John's baptism of repentance was simply a foretaste, a a shadow of the forgiveness that would be made available through the Messiah. In John chapter 3, Jesus explains this winnowing fork ministry pretty clear when he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe? John, the the baptizer, was the final prophet between (coughs) the Old and New Testaments. In a sense, he was the bridge from one era of redemptive history to the next. But he simply prepared the way. Like he says in the Gospel of John, Jesus must increase and I must become less. Become less is what he did. Let's finish our passage before we spend a little time in application. Verse 19. Thanks for the cough drop. Let me try this out. Verse 19. (coughs) That didn't help. (coughs) But when John rebuked Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus that Herod locked up John at the fortress on the other side of Qumran, along the Dead Sea, where he would eventually be killed. John was a prophet, and prophets tell the truth, even when it cost them their lives. John could have been tempted to have his his baptism, his thriving baptism ministry, all the while coming alongside Herod. Say what needed to be said to to gain influence, win the moral majority. But he doesn't. John calls a spade a spade, isn't afraid to call Herod out for his sin and pays the ultimate price. Because John knows you can't advance two kingdoms. Herod probably thought John was a little intense, like, I'm nothing compared to my dad and his ten wives Why is this John fella giving me such a hard time? And just as as a side application, how easy is it for us in the name of love to not call sin, sin? And and in doing so, give people the opposite of love. We, We can and should learn a lot from John. We need grace and truth. This is love. Though John's ministry simply pointed to the coming Messiah, and John himself had a rather simple pre-cross message, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, namely, treat people well as the day of the Lord draws near. But as we'll find out in weeks ahead, Israel doesn't want that message. They want a Messiah to dethrone Rome and usher in a kingdom now. 
Not a Messiah who himself gets so low as to take the job of a Gentile slave and wash his own disciples' feet. The Messiah who calls his people to a new way of life, an upside-down way of life, and ushers in an upside-down kingdom through the cross. Yet they weren't looking for a Messiah like the Jesus John was pointing to. But what about you? It's easy to, to love a Messiah who simply forgives us of our sins. But what about a Messiah who calls us to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? We love the fact that we've been justified by faith alone and praise God that the gospel message is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. This is Reformation Month. But let us be reminded this morning that that true faith, like the reformer Martin Luther himself said, is never alone. We can see John the baptizer as a bit of a sin-hunting legalist. Do this, don't do that. We so often want to believe the gospel without being told how to live the gospel. We like the idea of John's ministry, a ministry of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Amen. But, but, but in our individualistic culture, we can sometimes make repentance solely about me and God. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I'm good. But what if Jesus' ministry was an extension of what John the baptizer was already up to? What if Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? We saw in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. One group does not believe. They will perish Let that sit in for a second. The other group does believe they will have eternal life. But what does belief or faith look like? Listen to a few verses from John 15. And they won't be up on the screen, so you can close your eyes if that helps you concentrate. But this is Jesus speaking to his followers. He sounds a bit like his cousin. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
Jesus is saying, because he's the one that baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's important. This is not you bearing fruit by your own strength. Jesus, who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. We're now united to himself. We get to abide in Jesus, the God-man. But in doing so, we're called to bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Repentance is not one-dimensional. True repentance, it, it, it turns us not only to God, but it brings us to one another. Luke scholar Daryl Daryl Bach <coughs> says this, I would suggest this idea of true repentance is one of the most comprehensive and revolutionary thoughts in Scripture. It is where God seeks to take believers as he changes our hearts, turning us toward him, our families, and our neighbors. If the church applied this goal consistently, I believe it would change our world. Amen. Is is your life marked by true repentance? A heart that is turned to God and a life that is others-oriented. Imagine if we, RP, as a community, a yachad, a church, looked like God's repentant people. A people saved by grace through faith, but a faith that brings true repentance, that's cross-shaped. It's designed not only to bring us to God, but to give us God's heart for people that we treat people the way we want to be treated, that we love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's be that kind of chiachad. Amen? Amen. Let me pray to that end. Oh Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Christ. Thank you for the fact that you were the reality of what John the baptizer pointed to, that you brought in true forgiveness, that you have allowed us to participate in true repentance, that we are now your people. God, I pray as we go out from here that we would be your people, that we would bear fruit, fruit that would last. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.